Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, a look back at the last year of the coronavirus. So we've all been subject to, in recent days, a, a slew of stories noting the fact that it's been just over a year since the World Health Organization declared the COVID pandemic, indeed a, a pandemic. And there's been stories about what that's mean for for our jobs, what's that, what that's mean for the health system, what that's meant for the economy, and just a lot just coming back at us to remind us of what we've just been through as if we all didn't just live through this. And I actually think there's been not enough written or spoken about the sort of trauma of all of this. A trauma both to, to all of us as citizens of the world, but also to journalists who are writing about this. And so how, how do they th- sort of think about that? How do they write about it? How do they reflect on it in their own experience? Is something I'm just not seeing enough about which is why I'm so happy to have on today Dr. Allison Holman. Dr. Holman is a health psychologist, nurse, and a professor at the University of California, Irvine's Sue and Bill Gross School of Nursing. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Really happy to have you. And you're, you're so much the person I want to talk to right now <laughs> about all of this. Um, you've studied the effect of coverage of different traumatic events around the world, the shooting in New Zealand, the Boston Marathon bombing, 9-11, the coverage of the Ebola crisis. Do you share my view that we're just not talking enough in media right now about what we've just lived through the last year? I think the focus of the media has been too much on the biomedical side of the house. And there's been not enough attention to, I mean, there's been some attention to it. I mean, I've been doing lots and lots of interviews actually about time and and all that, but relatively speaking, there has been much less done about the mental impact of this virus and the pandemic on our well-being. I mean, it's just, it's, there's been so much going on, and I think there's been much less attention to understanding how it's affected people as well as why it has affected people in this way. You know, I, I, I've i thought a lot about this recently to the point that it gets sort of overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, time, the New York Times recently had a piece that I thought was really interesting. They asked people to reflect on when was the moment that you realized what this really was? Hmm. Um, and everybody, there's a lot of quotes from people with individual examples. And for me, it was a podcast that I was listening to from an epidemiologist who was saying, this was like before, this was like, I guess, in late February last year. And he Uh was saying, um, this is coming. People, you know, there's a good chance people, you know, are going to die. Your kids are going to be out of school and your life is going to be transformed. And I was like, and I actually went and, and I called my wife and I said, this guy, this is, this this thing is enormous, uh, mm-hmm. but I have no idea. And and there's something about like looking back on our year ago selves that mm-hmm. I find really sort of poignant and difficult. It is the lack of reflection on the mental side of this for COVID any different than the reflection for for example on the mental side of nine eleven or on Ebola? Mm. 
I think it's yes in in many ways because I think the efforts have been obviously necessarily focused on trying to find vaccines, create vaccines, find cures, etc. So there's been a lot of attention on that because this particular event is an ongoing health disaster, right? It's an ongoing um form of chronic stress and and trauma but it's a physical health disaster that's yeah. killing several I mean killing people in an ongoing way thousands by the day over the course of the past year yeah and so it's had a somewhat different um effect on people and i think that is yeah i think that the attention to the mental health consequences has been sort of given a shorter shrift because relative to the enormity, the absolute enormity of the physical threat that this virus poses to our country, to our people, I think that's part of the reason why that it's kind of given short shrift. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm not not even sure. I'm not even sure we understand the scale of it even now. I, I just think just our ability to process the enormity of it. I, I, I don't know that for my sake, I don't know if it's really, if it's really sunk in mm-hmm. uh, is, is media ever good at writing about mental health issues and trauma? Well, about mental health and trauma. Yeah. They, in, in general, yes. There are times when the media can actually get things and do things well. But in the context of coping with these major collective traumas, what tends to happen is that there's, there's a focus too much of a focus on sensationalism Uh and, and the need to, you know, get that big story out and the sensationalism of using, for example, eye catching images Mm -hmm. uh, from an event, for example, after, um, after 9-11, an eye-catching event was seeing the planes fly into the towers, mm-hmm. uh, seeing the person jump from, mm-hmm. you know, images like that, those kinds of things. Um, and after the Boston Marathon bombing, it was seeing, you know, bloody images of mm-hmm. people who've been hurt and blood on the, around the sidewalk and et cetera, et cetera. So when we show these really um, visually kind of visceral images, what can happen is that it actually can, and, 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 and have that kind of accompanied by, you know, the, the horror of this and all of that. I think what happens is that people get caught up in those images and they get caught up in that. And I think um, what's really important is for journalism to try to just be very objective and stick to the facts and not engage in sensationalism, not engage in trying to, you know, and it, and it runs counter than a for-profit motive. But what does that mean in terms of COVID? I mean, it reminds me of these stories and photographs and even videos from inside ICU units mm-hmm. and where you see, I mean, the, the graphic nature of these is sometimes 
really hard to take. And the time, you know, the Times in New York did a whole se- uh, video on you see the video inside the patient's room with them either being ventilated or of mm-hmm. them struggling to breathe. There's photographs of their family on the other side of the glass. Mm-hmm. Um, and the argument is always, well, that's what it takes to bring home the severity mm-hmm. of what's going on. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that that it may not that, that those ends may not justify that goal. Well, we know that the sensationalism and the overexposure to the media, in part because of that sensationalism, is associated with what are called acute stress symptoms. The post, those are early post-traumatic stress symptoms that are linked to these major collective traumas. And acute stress symptoms are also associated with both mental and physical health consequences down the road. Yeah. So, yeah, that too much exposure to these kinds of things is not good for people mentally or physically. However... I feel very torn about this, actually, to be quite blunt. Um, There is a movement after the Columbine High School shooting, you know, where Mm -hmm. 13 people were killed. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, It was a couple years back. There were some high school kids and some survivors, I believe, um, who were basically arguing. And I think this happened after the Marjorie Stoneham Douglas Mm-hmm. Uh, shooting in Florida. Mm-hmm. And basically what happened is people came out and said, look, the only way that America is going to stop allowing uh, us to have these incredibly loose gun laws is for people to actually see what happens. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you need to show the blood and you need to show the gore and you need to show how horrible this is or else people just won't get it. And what can I say? That is, uh, you know, I hear that argument, but the evidence is that, you know, showing, sometimes showing these really intensive um, kinds of images actually doesn't motivate people to engage in behavior to prevent things. It actually can make you avoid that whole topic, right? You make you, make you so, it can be so gruesome, so um uh, noxious that you actually makes you avoid the topic. And so it can backfire to do that. So there has to be a way to find that happy medium. I want to get back to that question about what's a best practice and how do, how do we cover it if we don't do what you're advising people not to do. But before I get to that, I'm curious, uh, I've talked to, um, for this podcast, some, some other healthcare professionals who were in ICU units. I've, we've talked to a teacher in a part of New York City that really got hit hard hit by COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I just I, I'm curious about is how do you how do how do you yourself protect yourself? Like what you, you've been you know your your whole world of work is is trauma and how how do you kind of like create a boundary for yourself in terms of the media that you consume or the information mm-hmm. process, specifically around COVID? That's an excellent question. So graphic imagery and overexposure to the media, while it generally it has this negative effect, in particular, I'm talking about graphic imagery. People who are drawn to that the most, um, especially the graphic imagery, can be people and the people who are at greatest risk are the people with the most active imaginations. So how do I do it, deal with it? 
I just don't engage with that stuff. I, if I'm going to, I, I set limits on how much time I spend on reading or um, acquiring news information. I, I mostly read articles instead of look at, you know, video pictures of things. Mm-hmm. I try to avoid that repetitive cycle. Like what we see often in uh, on TV news shows or on social media is that they'll show the same set of images over and over and over while they're tell- telling you the story of what happened. I basically shut down my engagement with social media in terms of in terms of my own personal account. Way so I get informed by reading the news. I try to use as many diverse sources of news as I can, but I do it limited amounts of time. And I found that naturally over the course of COVID that at first I was like indulging intensely into the media and I found that it would it became overwhelming. And so round about last summer, early summer, I was I'm done. I can't I can't keep doing that. Yeah. I'm yeah. gonna continue getting to know information. I'm gonna read the scientific literature, which is much easier to read and understand and instead of focusing on just reading all the media stories. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it reminds me of, I mean, I live in New York and, and you know, that a year ago, last March and April were so mm-hmm. horrific here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we were, you know, the governor had a daily TV briefing right. that we were just glued to. Um, right. Everybody I knew was watching that and it was very tough stuff. I mean, it was, you know, Here's here's how many people died. Here's how close the uh, emergency rooms are to capacity. Here's how many uh, respirators we have left in the state, and how mm-hmm. close people are running out. And and I I sort of had the same experience that you did in a way. Like at some point I was like I I can't I can't do it anymore. I have to sort of pull back. But because of my day job, <laughs> I right. can't. I can only do it so much. So let's talk about th- this is the really important part now. Like so. Showing graphic, these kind of graphic images is generally not helpful. You're advising. Right. Right. So how do we keep people informed? And even, even let's say, let's, let's say one of our goals is even to motivate people either to take, not only to get informed, but, you know, take action in terms of their own health or take action in terms of like calling their congressman if there's something they want to call their congressperson about or whatever. But so how do you, how do you, how should the media be presenting this that, that, keeps people engaged and informed and impassioned about this, but without scaring them? That's a good question. Actually, to be frank, I would say right now the media could use some lessons from people in like uh, Baruch Fishoff, who's a professor at Carnegie Mellon University, who is an expert in decision science. And he has you know, very good recommendations for how to present information in a way that's that's balanced. So you give people, and we've done some work together. So what you do is you give people honest information, you give them a balance of information, and you're transparent. For example, we did a study on Ebola, and we found that when you actually tell people honestly and openly what their risk is, and you give them information, you say, well, this is what the risk is, this is what the, people actually respond by understanding it. Yeah. You know, don't accompany it by a cycle of, 
you know, images that can just keep repeating in people's brains over and over again. Um, and I also think it's important to get a to the more you can diversify the story, like give as much, you know, diverse pieces of information that re that are relevant. So you so you really inform people. So in-depth kind of work would be valuable to be so that you're able to answer questions that a person might have after hearing the basic information. We've been having a debate in our office around how to cover the vaccines. And um, mm -hmm. especially when you start looking at the different um, effectiveness rates of the different vaccines, there's, mm -hmm. been, there's been a fair, and there's been some sort of scaremongering reporting around, you know, this one is, you know, it's, it's only whatever, 70%, whereas this other one is 90, 90%, um, which, uh, which the public health officials that I've read are like, they're both extremely effective. <laughs> mm -hmm. Stop this, this, we need to stop this attempt to kind of distinguish one from the other and get people to try to gain the different vaccines. Have, have you looked at that, that particular issue? Any vaccine is better than nothing. Yeah. So even if it's only 70%, get it. If that's all you can get, get it. It's not, it's certainly not going to hurt you and it very well may help you and it will help you. So, you know, so I would, I would encourage people to think that way about that. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, about what you were saying, asking about earlier, you know, how do you inspire people to get engaged, to stay engaged? The only way we're going to get through this pandemic is by working as a, as a team, by recognizing that we are all, you know, despite the fact that this country is a country built on the rugged individualistic manifest destiny approach to life, where you're supposed to pull yourself up from your boot with your bootstraps and all that stuff. The reality is everybody is dependent on other people. You don't survive in your life without being connected to other people. We need people. Human beings need to belong. And if we can focus a little bit, have the media focus a little bit on trying to address like what are some ways that you can actually help us get over this pandemic faster by helping your neighbors. Maybe there's something you can do um, by, by seeing this in a way that is more connected to the strengthening of our social fabric, to the understanding that social responsibility that we each have. And by playing up the need for that social fabric to be strong and for the need to, um, for every individual to help other, you know, to do what they can to help other people. I think that can, can empower people. You're giving people power to do something about this horrible thing that you've just told them about. Mm -hmm. And so you put the power back in their hands, you put control back in their hands. Um, but really emphasizing that, you know, all is not lost because, I mean, yes, a ton is lost. And some people do may feel, may feel like all has been lost, but all is not lost because this thing happened. Mm -hmm. And the point is, how can we move past it? What are some concrete things? When you focus on encouraging people to, to, to think about themselves as part of that broader social fabric, that's actually good for them. Mm -hmm. When people see themselves as that and take that responsibility and actually do something to help a neighbor or help in their community, 
it helps them in their physical health and their mental health. I've talked about how journalists aren't that good at good news. Um, it's not something that we're we're taught to sort of focus on. So that brings us to the sort of final point, which is where we are in this cycle, which is things are looking quite good, right? Um, mm-hmm. And um, there's reason for hope, real reason for hope. Um, yep. But it that that is it, it, it. I've noticed just in my reading and watching, it's very hard for journalists to say that outright. I do think it is hard for people sometimes to turn the corner and acknowledge what's there, especially when there's been devastating loss. Like mm-hmm. there were families that lost multiple members of their families. Mm-hmm. It's just tragic. It's tragic. And that can make it hard for people to turn around. Um, but a non-judgmental listening ear and well, now the clinician in me is talking, but a non-judgmental listening ear and somebody that accepts and uh, a person and where they are, that's the way to get people to help people turn around. If they're going to turn around, some people won't. One of the things that's critical at a time like this for the media to recognize is that there's incredible variability in how people respond to these events incredible variability. Not everybody responds the same way. And so understanding that you might have some people who are doing fine, who may have lost somebody and are doing fine. You might have people who have lost somebody and say they'll never get over it. And you're going to have everybody in between. And so it's really important to understand that there is that variability. That's a a known fact of, of coping with major loss and major traumatic events. Tremendous variability and tremendous resilience. Hmm. People are resilient and many people are resilient. And it's important to support and promote that and encourage that um, in your listeners, readers. Hmm. It's a good note to end on. Dr. Holman, thank you so much. Thank you. You can read CJR's coverage of the uh, pandemic uh, and the vaccination progress at CGR.org. You can follow us in our daily email newsletter, The Media Today, as well as on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next week.